Welcome to Life on Less Meds, a podcast that reveals the truth about drug side effects and the best strategies to manage them. And now your host, Dr. Yosef Wittering. So today I am glad to be joined by Sarah Price Hancock. She is a prominent figure in the uh, movement advocating for ECT harms, and she's going to be sharing her story uh, today. But uh, Sarah, you know, before we kind of jump into all of that, I'd like you just to introduce yourself, just briefly sort of catch the audience up on the kind of the, the kind of work and advocacy that you do. Certainly. So um, I am a certified rehabilitation counselor and a former professor of clinical psychiatric rehabilitation at San Diego State University. Um, while I was doing my graduate work, I needed to understand how to how to return to work because I was living with ECT injury. I had just quit ECT against medical advice the year before I started my graduate program. And I knew the only way I would be able to be successful in that program was if I were able to access uh, appropriate requisite uh, academic accommodations. The only way I could get academic accommodations was if I were to get a com comprehensive neuropsych evaluation and also the physical, you know, evaluation for some of the problems that I was having, for example, with uh, my the electricity traverses the entire spine and I have spinal issues. So I needed a special chair at the time I was not using a wheelchair. I needed a special chair and I needed some adaptive equipment. And the only way to get that equipment was if I could prove that I needed it. And so I, until that point, my psychiatrist had categorically refused any referral for comprehensive assessments for balance or vision or neuropsych testing regarding my memory because they kept saying my memory would come back. And a year of this, I was like, dude, you know, sorry, but it hasn't yet come back and I want to move on with my life. And so my outpatient psychiatrist was a gem and he was like, you know what, Sarah, you're doing so well. You, you've always wanted to go to graduate school. You need to go to graduate school. I'll refer you for the comprehensive neuropsych testing. So I did the comprehensive neuropsych testing and, um, the results were such that I was, uh, they identified mild cognitive impairment. They identified that it took me an inordinately amount of time, an inordinate amount of time to, uh, at the time, find my words even, and also uh, to read and process information. And so, because I fell so far off the standard of normalcy uh, in these tests, I was qualified to have double time on my tests. Um, double what my peers had. And I, I was actually, I qualified to have all of my uh, lectures recorded uh, so that I could review those lectures later after class. And I qualified for a note taker so that I could um, have someone else concentrate on taking notes because my coordination of writing while processing information I was hearing had been severely compromised. And this was a huge standard, like massive deviation from my baseline because prior to ECT, I had not only graduated with a pretty decent GPA, all, all things considered, I didn't quite meet the honors category, but I did a great job at BYU. And I, um, had, uh, I forget what I was thinking. Oh, when I was at BYU, I had actually, um, 
volunteered with the university um, as a university interpreter for campus events and uh, devotionals and plays and, you know, those kinds of things. So I was actually interpreting in American Sign Language at the university level. Um, and so that requires a lot of, you know, processing your language, understanding what you're saying, and then being able to coordinate your muscle movement, coordinate the motor output mm -hmm. in response to the, to the sensory input. And I had lost that capacity entirely. And so and now I couldn't even listen to a lecture and take notes to keep up with the lecture. So gratefully, the university found someone in my classes and I owe them so much because <laughs> they took all notes. They shared with me all of their notes and I was able to um, participate and graduate on time um, because I was given these academic accommodations. I did so well in my program and I had such remarkable professors and cohort. They basically decided to use me as their case study for our three-year program. And so uh, any time any student needed assistance, uh, needed a, a volunteer person with a psychiatric disorder to do a case study on or to, you know, do an assessment for or such as that, um, they, they frequently chose me. And so consequently, I was connected with, uh, assistive technology that typically aren't given to people, um, at that time because I had students who were doing comprehensive assessments and then writing well documented reports, well researched, well documented reports. So, and so, so me, I was able to use a lot of assistive technology. So, so let, let me ask this just to, um, um, just to focus in. Yes. Why did you end up getting ECT? <laughs> That's a good question. I had ECT because at the time my doctors did not recognize that I was having two problems. I initially had a psychosis and they did not recognize that it was secondary to hepatic encephalopathy. And so I had a fungal infection and basically I had like, I guess it was fungal hepatic encephalopathy and some people you might have known that or heard of that as like brewery syndrome where your body mm -hmm. is making alcohol and so though i had never tasted alcohol my brain was basically marinating in alcohol because of the amount of uh, fungal mm -hmm. byproducts i had in my system and so did when they I, misdiagnose that as depression well initially they misdiagnosed oh. it as a bipolar uh, with psychosis and wow. then because the psychiatric medications made me worse and my psychosis was no longer uh, contingent on mood then um, they decided that my real diagnosis was schizoaffective disorder bipolar type with catatonia okay. and so I didn't respond to the medications and when I didn't respond to the medications they said we need to give you shock treatment. And how long was it uh, between when you started having symptoms and when you uh, got ECT? Like, was that like several months? Uh, like, yeah. what was the time course? Yeah. So my very first psychotic break was in um, right after I'd returned from my uh, mission for the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Within like three months, I got really bad pneumonia when I was at BYU. And so they put me on antibiotics. And soon thereafter, I had my first psychotic break. And um, that, uh, I was taken off the BYU campus by campus security and taken to the uh, hospital there close to BYU. And uh, they 
looked at, you know, all of my symptoms and they knew that I had a family member who was also, I had two family members who had been diagnosed with bipolar disorder. So they assumed that that was my diagnosis and went with it. There was no uh, recognition that I didn't have these symptoms before the antibiotic and there was no like spinal tap or, you know, anything of that nature. Okay. And so when you... So when you got ECT, um, so do you remember what they from, told you about it? No. <laughs> yeah, okay. But um, from from ninety eight, so what happened was I was first diagnosed and medicated in ninety eight, and yeah. then I was able to return to BYU and complete my degree. It took me an exponentially longer time, but that was in ninety eight. I finally graduated from BYU in two thousand two in April, and then. That following December is when they were like, you know what, we've tried every medication that's available at this time. And so um, we need to try something else. And so it wasn't until December of 2002 that I was first given shock treatments. And how many uh, treatments were you given in your first round? Um, my first round I was given, uh, let's see, I only recently got my medical notes I was given more than 50 if I remember correctly the problem <laughs> was um, they I wasn't responding to the ECT and mm -hmm. so they just kept giving me back-to-back -back acute courses of ECT so that's three times a week three times a week three times a week twice a week twice a week once a week okay she's not getting better three times a week three times a week twice a week twice a week once a week oh she's not getting better basically they were they were the living embodiment of Einstein's definition of insanity and and so <sighs> were you injured after that first round or did you undergo subsequent rounds of ECT? I suspect that I was injured in that first round. My my parents indicate that I was injured in that first round. I mm -hmm. I speak of this kind of like in a, as a third person because I by the time I had the second round of ECT um, and finished that that was from two thousand two to two thousand nine. By the time I was finished with that, um, I had erased the first 34 years of my life, the life experience of the first 36 years of my life. So I don't know if you can see it, but on this bookcase behind me, I have 38 volumes of journals. And so I basically pieced together my life based on the journals that I wrote since I was 12. Okay. And, you know, I know you've had um, spinal injury now from the shock treatment. Was yeah. that apparent after the first uh, rounds or was that something that emerged later on? I, I really couldn't tell you. Um, I know mm -hmm. that it wasn't until I started having uh, the started, you know, I need help. I need help because what had happened is something had happened in my lumbar spine. And so... What we didn't know and what nobody really discusses is that ECT is an, an electrical injury. Mm -hmm. There are no rubber bumpers in your brain to prevent the electricity from traversing the spine and your entire nervous system. There are no rubber bumpers to keep, you know, the, your electrical stimulation in a specific spot. And you're putting nearly an amp into not only the nervous system, but the entire cerebrovascular system and, and and vascular system. So this is electricity that's not only impacting the 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 brain, but it's also, you know, activating the what's it called? The um what's the word? The vagal, you know, the, the trigeminovagal mm -hmm. complex. And it's also, you know, you you have your entire trigeminal nerve system where they put the electrode directly above that, but you also have the entire trigeminal um, vascular system there too. Okay. And so electricity follows the path of least resistance. And <laughs> so, yeah. Um, yeah I, so, see, I always thought it went between the two <laughs> electrodes they place on your head. Is that not the case? Well, yeah. I mean, yeah. This is, is it like most is, of it, but like some of it a, goes uh, 
different places? Well, what happens is the nervous system is designed to communicate using two to four milliamps of electricity. That's how your nervous system communicates. So the ECT devices, um, according to Abbott, uh, the publication that he published just this past year, Abbott and company said that the ECT devices have a fixed dose of, depending on the device, 800 to 900 milliamps. Mm-hmm. So that's exponentially more than the two to four that your nervous system functions on. So as self-preservation, um, the nervous system, because electricity takes the path of least resistance, based on the laws of electromagnetism, the electricity diffuses through the entire Mm -hmm. body. So though it is, you know, the focal point might be, for example, in bilateral ECT, the focal point is the anterior of the frontal lobes and the brainstem. And in, in unilateral, the focus is the area actually that, um, Dr. What's his name? John, uh, I forget his name. He was a neuro, neuro, neurologist who spoke extensively on the neuropathology of ECT. Friedberg, Dr. Friedberg. He said that it, it, when you do the right unilateral, it actually damages the area involved in insight. And so, um, it exploits, he said that it, and, he said that it exploits the anis, the uh, brain's anisognosia. So those who are injured don't recognize how injured they are. And so, and the body's built-in defense mechanism diffuses the electricity through the entire body. That's why if you put the cuff on the ankle, that's why you can still see the toe twitch. The toe is twitching because it's responding to the electricity in that toe. You know, in the foot, if the if you've put the cuff on the foot, sure. the toe is twitching because of the electricity of that uh, thing. Okay, so. and um, you know, another thing I wanted to ask: when when did you find out that the cause of the psychosis was this sort of fungal infection? When, when did you get that piece of information? Oh my goodness! So what happened was I carefully, carefully, carefully titrated off all of my medications in 2015. They'd stopped working. I'd found some people who did a lot of research on micronutrition, um, Bonnie and, uh, the a wonderful woman in New Zealand. I'm sorry. My ECT brain is not coming up with names, but there's a woman, uh, uh, PhD in Canada and a PhD in New Zealand that have researched extensively third party research on micronutrients. And once I found that, um, I was like, you know what? Maybe I can use this to control my, my symptoms instead of using the, uh, psychiatric medication. So I carefully tapered off all of my medications with uh, the help of wonderful uh, doctors and support. And then, um, I was in the thoroughs of the protracted withdrawals. Um, and I've heard of a doctor who was doing, uh, amino acid and NAD supplementation that could help alleviate these protracted withdrawals. And so I contacted him and in the intake, he started interviewing me and he took an extremely extensive, uh, what's it called? medical history. And when he learned of my history with all of the allergies and the chronic bronchitis and the chronic ear infections and the chronic sinus infections of childhood, he said, how many antibiotics did you have in, you know, when you were a kid? And I was like, well, I was, re- I was a repeat offender. You know, they were always giving me amoxicillin, you know, four to six times a year. And he said, through your childhood? And I was like, yeah, and we just had these treatment resistant infections that were just coming back and coming back. And he said, well, you know, your natural stomach has, 
you know, the natural yeast and everything in it. And sometimes people who are over prescribed uh, antibiotics or have adverse reactions to these antibiotics, they can get thrush or they can get fungal infections or yeast infections in other parts of the body. And he said, I suspect that what's happened with you and we can't prove it because there's no way to biopsy this or like, you know, biopsy the right area to make sure. And there's really no test for this. But he said, I suspect that the natural yeast in your stomach has outgrown your stomach and gone right into the next organ, which is the liver. And so I suspect that now that you have a fungal infection in your liver and I by this time, I was teaching my clinical, you know, psych rehab classes and the, we were working in the DSM and, you know, I was teaching all this to my students and he's telling me that all of my symptoms are caused by a fungal infection. I laughed that poor doctor up one wall and down the other. It was so bad. And he said, well, Sarah, how long does it take for the the, medi- the drugs, the psychiatric drugs to work? And I said, well, it takes about six to eight weeks typically. And he said, yeah, so you have, you have, oh, my thing is falling down. You have a problem. You have a new marriage, you have a new career, and you have psychosis. And so this can destroy what you have built. So you have a choice. Do you want me to send you to the psychiatric hospital so they can begin another regiment of, 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 figuring out the medication for you? Or do you want to try this treatment for the fungal infection? And I was like, well, how long will that take? And he said, we will know within a week whether or not it is the right treatment. And I was like, Mm -hmm. I mean, that's to me, the risk benefit. I was like a week versus eight weeks. And I had already, when I quit ECT, they had actually told me that my doctor, that they had not yet invented the medication that would address my psychiatric symptoms. And I was just supposed to wait until they did so that, you know, just in a holding pattern until the pharmaceutical Mm -hmm. companies developed a new med for me. And I was like, forget that. You know, I I want to get better. I want to get on with my life. Anyway, so I told my doctor, okay, I will give you a week. And if this doesn't work, then I'm going to have to go back into the hospital and get back on meds. And I was just, anyway, I was beside myself because I just had a a new marriage and my new career and everything. Anyway, so they, he prescribed two different antifungal prescriptions and he radically altered my diet um, using the protocol that was developed by Dr. Bruce Seaman. It's called the yeast free, uh, protocol. Dr. Seaman is a child psychiatrist with a, uh, PhD in clinical nutrition. He used to work mm-hmm. for the NIH when he was getting his PhD. He was a researcher at the NIH. And so he had this entire protocol, uh, addressing something that psychiatry actually recognized back in the eighties. Um, and so, yeah, he developed this entire protocol. And I, so I began strictly adhering to this diet, which is basically just vegetables and meat. Um, and, uh, yeah, I just, I worked so hard on this diet and I was, completely treatment compliant as I had been the entire time with all of the other treatments. Mm-hmm. And I was so violently ill on that first and first and second day of the antifungals that I almost couldn't continue. And I, that kind doctor had given me his phone number and he said, Sarah, it's your choice. You can go into the hospital and they can start the antipsychotics on you again, or you can push through. He said, when you get put on these antibiotics and these antifungals, you know, that sometimes it's harder first than it is to go in the long term. And so I was like, okay. And he, he had told me, you know, your symptoms will wax in a way in these, you know, the, the 
symptoms caused by the antibi or by the antifungals will wax and wane based on the timing of them. So you will take your nystatin and then you will have, you know, within 20 to 40 minutes, you'll have an influx of just really bad nausea and everything else that goes with that. Um, and then if you watch, you know, you have healthy kidneys. So by the end of four hours, that will wash through your system and those symptoms will subside. And then you won't have any more symptoms. And you, But then four hours later, it's time to take the next dose. And I was like, okay. So then I was like, you know, so then I'm charting. Okay, I took it at this time. And you know what? You know, about a half an hour before the next dose, I was feeling better and I was no longer as acutely mm-hmm. symptomatic. And so, okay, I'll take the next dose. So I did it. And by the... F- by the end of the week, I let him know that, you know what, we're on to something because I was no longer psychotic and my mood had come back in to uh, stability. I was no longer the persistent agitated mess and uh, I my sleep was beginning to return. Previously, I was in such bad withdrawals, protracted withdrawals and my brain was so on fire that, you know, I could go to sleep and I would sleep like 20 to 30 minutes at a time. Mm-hmm. And then after we started dropping my brain's inflammation, then it was, uh, you know, I knew that I could take this. He had prescribed the Nystatin and the other, the other antifungal was a more powerful antifungal, but I could only take it you know, twice a day, but the nice statin he had me taking every four hours round the clock. And so even when I woke up in the middle of the night, I would take it along with vitamin C and a probiotic and my brain could calm down and go back to sleep within 40 minutes. So it was just fascinating to me. And, um, um, so, so tell me a little bit about, uh, your role sort of in the ECT advocacy space, what kind, what have you been doing in in that space? Well, during my graduate program, um, I recognized that part of the problem I was having was that they had to do a lot of testing on me to understand exactly how bad my deficits were, how deep they were. And it wasn't until I was given the right assessments that they could identify what was wrong with me. And so, you know, through my graduate course, I took two semesters of assessments, not only neuropsych assessments, but also all of the physical type assessments. And I began to, you know, my entire research for my entire program was on helping people with ECT. And so I was constantly gathering information on how to improve our quality of life post-treatment um, so that everyone can return to live a productive life as I had um, or as I was working on doing at the time. And so I, as I dug into the ECT research, I began realizing that they were using something called the MMSE to assess for cognitive uh, problems. Now, the MMSE is the Minnesota, Minnesota, can you say it for me? It's the Minnesota Multiphasic something exam. <laughs> I thought it was the, the mini mental state exam. Maybe. That's what it is. Yeah. I'm getting two yeah. things confused. Thank you. Yeah. Yes, it's the mini mental state exam. So the status exam. So the interesting thing about this uh, MMSE is that you know, my doctor couldn't give me the MMSE and qualify me for these academic accommodations. I had to go through and get a comprehensive assessment. And I started looking at the MMSE and they, there's research on, you know, published by Rose at all that says that, you know, the MMSE can actually be passed by people who are lobotomized. And I'm sorry, but if people who are lobotomized can pass the MMSE, clearly we're not accurately measuring the deficits caused by ECT. And so as I was going through my learning um, in my assessment classes, my teachers were driving home. If, you know, if you don't do the right assessment, you're not going to be getting 
they're not going to be identifying the deficit. Oops. Mm -hmm. So this is, um, really important for people who live with ECT injuries because their doctors are denying them comprehensive assessments because they score within the normal range in the MMSE. And unfortunately, uh, the MMSE is a very gross measurement of cognitive status. And if a lobotomized patient can pass it, it's not effective. That's It's akin to saying, you know, going to your doctor with a fever and a cough and saying, you know, I really think I have COVID. I'm, you know, I'm really, I'm really struggling with my breathing. I'm really having problems with COVID. I need to be tested for COVID, please. And the doctor saying, oh, go stand on that scale. Oh yeah, your, your, your weight's good. You don't have COVID, don't worry about it. We don't need to do further testing. You know, if you don't do the right tests, you're not going to get the right answer. And that's so what's has there happened. Been any kind of, um, has there been any advance in developing a standardized tool that is sensitive to detect the type of uh, ECT uh, neurological damage? Um, not a comprehensive one. They have taken steps to move in the right direction, but they are not moving far enough. They're not testing the visual changes. They're not testing the auditory changes. They're not testing the motor changes. And the, what they're testing, they're not even testing the autobiographical changes. Janice did a wonderful study back in the day where he required all of the ECT recipients to to take the test before, you know, an autobiographical test before ECT and then retest afterwards. And I mean, he had a woman who was acutely had acute allergies who didn't even remember that she had acute allergies. These are things that she knew before treatment. And so, you know, they've just chosen not to measure the right things. So it was interesting because just last year, the year before, there was a neuropsychologist who was very well respected in his field who underwent ECT and he had deficits afterwards. But he also had a team of neuropsychologists who respected him. And so when he said, I'm sorry, this test did not capture my deficits, his team said, which test will, and they just kept testing. And so if you look at that report that they published on on him, they go through all of the tests they did on him and all the things he scored normal in, and yet scored completely abnormally, several deviations outside of the norm on these other assessments. And so we really need to look at those comprehensive assessments, neuropsych assessments, but also basic occupational therapy assessments like the box and block test and, you know, balance assessments, because really what we're dealing with, the reason I suspect the reason why so many ECT recipients say that they lose the capacity to create new uh, memories is because of the consolidation issue. When you are not understanding, when you know, your vision and your auditory systems are permanently altered, you are, um, what's it called? You're not able to to take in the information and then because it's not taken in well, then it cannot consolidate and mm -hmm. you consolidate memory while you're sleeping. So, you know, if you're problem having problems sleeping, that's just not going to work. Mm. Um, do you think there's any movement towards greater? Well, do you think there's been any movement towards greater recognition of the harm of ECT in, I guess, the mainstream medical community? I'm uncertain. I, I hope there is because I, I worked with some wonderful people who specialize in electrical injury. Um, right now I'm uh, researching uh, the consequences of electrical injury with Dr. Beatrice Gollum and Dr. Mark Yeski. Dr. Mark Yeski is a Canadian uh, burn surgeon who uh, began uh, working with people with a history of electrical injury back in the 90s at Shriners Hospital. He's working with children who like bit live wires and in charge of their care. All the reconstruction that had to do uh, for the for these electrical injuries and he would follow these patients and you know it's now been 30 years and he 
began recognizing that there were some very real long-term consequences of electrical injury. And for some reason, psychiatry has chosen to focus entirely on mood, mood improvement, and to completely silo mood from the rest of the neurological processes of the brain. And so um, I think that once we begin looking at other aspects, you know, if you take all of the uh, articles written on electrical injury and compare them to what patients are reporting who have a history of ECT with the motor problems, with the dystonia, the muscle spasms, the hoarse voice, the this, you know, when we get really tired, we lose the ability to speak altogether. So I have if here... I can back up a little bit. I have like my keyboard here. I have my mounted speech device on my wheelchair. That's because my nervous system is basically losing the ability to use electrolytes. And so I, my, you know, my, my, my entire body. My entire body has been short circuited. Mm hmm. Psychiatry refers to ECT kind of as like a rebooting of the brain. But Dr. Witt, let's be serious. Have you ever rebooted your your computer with a power surge? No. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> we have surge yeah. protectors to prevent that, right? Yeah. And yeah. so, you know, it's the same with the body and the body is even more delicate. So my question to you um because as a psychiatrist, talk to me about your medical education. When you went through, you know, even your prereqs to even get into medical school, did you take like biochemistry class? No? no I mean, I did biology and chemistry yeah. in high uh -huh. school. Of course. Um, lots, of, um, lots of my colleagues did uh, focuses on that in undergrad. I did uh -huh. not. So I just went, I, I, I did a bachelor of arts. And so most of my physiology and chemistry was kind of, I mean, not really even taught in um, medical school. I remember going to the basic kind of physiology labs. Yeah. Um, and that's where we kind of learned hands-on uh, physics uh, related to the human body. But that, that was about it for me. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So, but when you were in medical school, you learned about, for example, the neurotransmitters and how the drugs, you know, the drugs affinity to the neurotransmitter receptors, those things that they discussed in medical school. Not really. I mean, I got kind of, uh, I remember a very brief series of lectures on psychiatry and I remember seeing a neuron at one stage with a receptor and they say, you know, well, you know, this is how we think the antidepressants work. There's something about receptor modulation that seems to be really helpful in depression. And that was, that was essentially it for medical school. I learned more in residency, but that was, residency, yeah. yeah, that was the medical school version. Wow. That's, yeah. that's really fascinating. The reason I ask is because like I have this book of uh, pharmacology um, and if in the back of it, it goes through all of the uh, psychotropic medications and their affinity for the, the neurotransmitter receptor. Mm -hmm. And it says like between plus and five pluses. So it's like this really acts on it or just kind yeah. of acts on it. And so, you know, those are things that you need to know as a resident to begin your rounds so that you understand the prescribing, right? You can't just, okay, we gotta, there's, you know, I mean, psychiatry prescribing is kind of interesting because there's no biomarkers, right? Yeah, I'd say it's a lot cruder than, um, you know, what you'd like to imagine, you know, there's, there's antidepressants and, you know, if you've diagnosed someone with five out of nine symptoms for greater than two weeks, then yeah. they they have a major depressive disorder, and then we have a range of treatments uh, that we could use for it. I, I mean, that's that's how we are taught to to practice. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's fascinating that you say that 
because my doctor was always telling me, well, Sarah, you know, these meds are like, like, you know, you need to take them for the rest of your life, just like a diabetic. And that really rang home to me because my mom was type one diabetic. And for the first, mm, I forget it was eight or 12 years of my life, my mom was allergic to all of the available insulins on the market. And so my mom spent a lot of times in comas because her blood sugar would get too high. And then when she was extremely regimented on her diet, then she would go the other direction because her blood sugars would get too low and she'd fall into a coma and then they'd have to give her sugar in an IV and then it would go too high. And they really, it was really difficult. And so when my doctor told me I needed these medications, like a diabetic needed insulin, it really rang true to me. But then I was the pest because I was like, you know, my mom tests her blood before every meal so that she knows how much insulin to take. And I said, so how are you prescribing these these drugs? Because you're not doing blood work on me, right? Like you're saying I need more serotonin. You're saying I, I need more dopamine or whatever, or I have too much dopamine, but where's the blood work? And my doctor would get really upset with me, but he kept telling me, this is like a diabetic needs insulin. And I have a mom that had <laughs> type one diabetes. I understood insulin. So I was extremely, I was extremely diligent in taking my medication, but it kindly got to the point where I realized my doctor was taking the shotgun approach to treating based on symptoms, not treating based on symptom cause. And mm-hmm. so that's why I finally made the hard decision to go off of the psychiatric medications because I needed to address the symptom etiology and not just try to force my brain and my body to function. And mm-hmm. so, yeah. So the interesting thing, contrary to prescribing practices for drugs, the laws of electricity are very exact. They are so exact, they're referred to as the laws of electromagnetism. It is a natural law governing electricity in the universe. And it's Mm -hmm. so exact and so precise that it can be written as a mathematical equation. So while psychiatry says they don't know how ECT works, we do know how the ECT device functions. Mm -hmm. And it functions, they put an electrode on one side of the head and an electrode on the other side of the head. And though the device itself is plugged into an outlet that has direct current, the machine changes it from direct current to alternating current. So one electrode pulses positive charge and one electrode pulses negative charge and they alternate. So all electrons in the body based on the laws of electromagnetism are pulled towards the positive charge and then the pulled towards the negative charge. And if you look at the patent for the thymatron machine, these pulses, I just saw that I was reading this patent yesterday. The pulses are like 120 to 100 and I forget, I forget exactly the numbers, but it's more than a hundred pulses and there's a range of pulses per second. And then the actual ECT device can discharge this current for eight seconds, up to eight seconds. So a psychiatrist without any subspecialty training in biophysics, without any subspecialty training in the histopathology of electrical injury, without any subspecialty training and the neuropathology of the treatment he's prescribing. A psychiatrist is given the reins to have a machine in front of him or her where they are in charge of configuring a dose. Now, you've seen the ECT machine, so they have the, um, they, it has a fixed current and then it also has a Hertz dial. It has a, depending on the device, it has like a percentage of power dial. Anyway, at 100%, uh, it also has a pulse width, so you can change between all of the different pulse widths. Um, And so, I mean, think of all of the variables involved in configuring an ECT Mm -hmm. dose. You have the power as a psychiatrist, you're privileged 
to choose on this device which dose your patient is going to get, but you have wow. to choose from more than 500 doses. Mm-hmm. Now, from an FDA perspective, as a device, I mean, as a drug uh, person who sat on the drug uh, committee, when a pharmaceutical company came to you and said, we've got a new drug, here, use it. Were they required to have dosing consensus standards? Yes. Mm-hmm. Yes. Were they required to have dosing consensus standards based on safety studies? Mm-hmm. Yes. So they had to establish the safe range of dose, right? Mm-hmm. So that is not done for ECT. ECT, the devices were grandfathered in when the FDA decided that they were going to start regulating devices. And since it was already in use, they said, well, we're going to keep using it because you guys have already been using it since the forties. And so it's a now officially grandfathered device. Well, what happened was um, psychiatry started getting a bad rap because there was a book that came out and then a movie that was very famous. Mind you, I've never seen this movie and everyone, I didn't even learn about this movie till after I had ECT. Yeah, the one who but, flew over the cuckoo's nest, right? Exactly. Yeah. And so psychiatry had this massive PR problem on their hands because here we have Jack Nicholson getting ECT on a cinematic screen in front of entire audiences. And back in the 60s, this was just, you know, I think the movie came out before I was born even. And so audiences were appalled. And so psychiatry said, we need to, we need to, we need to launch a, a PR campaign because, you know, we're, we're going to not do it like this movie. And at the time, there were still hospitals that were giving ECT without anesthesia. So they decided unilaterally in America, we're always going to use anesthesia and we're always going to use a paralytic. And they call it a muscle relaxant, but it's yep. a paralytic. It paralyzes the respiratory muscles and everything. And so the, then they said, you know, you can come in, you can come in and watch us give ECT because look, the patient is just nice and quiet and peaceful. They're not, they're not pain, you know, there's no pain involved. There's no convulsion. You can't see a convulsion, but there is a convulsion on the EEG machine. Anyway, so the problem was once they introduced this anesthesia, general anesthesia, Psychiatry had a problem because now they could no longer use the machines that they were previously using. Because as a doctor, if you have a a patient who comes into the ER in a seizure, what class of medication do you give them to stop the seizure? Mm -hmm. Yeah, usually benzos. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Benzos or some kind of anticonvulsant that Mm -hmm. also, or tranquilizer. And that's basically the same class of medication as anesthesia. So here we have doctors raising the seizure threshold. So the body will not go into a seizure. And so the American Psychiatric Association and the ECT task force actually approached both manufacturers of the devices and said, or at the time there was just one manufacturer and said, we need a stronger device. They petitioned the manufacturer to make a stronger device. And so the Mecta, that was the company at the time, said, you know, we'll make a stronger device for you. So they made a stronger device. And then um, they they got it grandfathered in because it was sufficiently uh, the same as the previously previously used device. So do you think ECT was safer back when it was, when they did it without anesthesia because they used a lower device, a lower powered device? Well, I don't know that it was safer because the body functions on two to four milliamps. Okay. So when you get above four milliamps, you know, when you get to, I don't know the, if you look at like the environment, the, the work, you know, vocational uh, safety guidelines for like OSHA. It will tell you the OSHA standards for electricity to the body. And when you get above those standards, it's going to cause damage. It's going to cause injury. And so, you know, I, I don't, 
I don't think it was safe back then. And I know it's not safe now because back then, you know, if you look at the old research, they're using 60 to 150 volts. They don't always say exactly how much current they use. Um, frequently, they don't say how much current they use. And so, but these modern devices are nearly an amp without any, and I quote, without any clinical or scientific rationale, they have a fixed dose at nearly an amp. And then uh, they can go all the way up to 450 volts, depending on the device, or they can go, you know, in, in America, it's 504 millicoulombs is the cutoff, but across the pond, they can go, or for the thymatron, and I think it's, Anyway, across the pond, the European devices sold by the American manufacturers are have an even larger amount of millicoulombs wow. produced. Okay. And so, you know, in America, you can have up to 500 more, more than 500 doses. But if you add all those extra millicoulombs, you can have who knows how many possible doses on a European device made in America. Wow. Okay. Well <sighs> This is like a lot of stuff I didn't know. I, I I do need to I do need to wrap up in about five minutes. So I was wondering what, what else what else is important um, to, to to share while we have this time together. Well, I think what's most important to share is in 2018, December 26, 2018, the FDA decided to reclassify the ECT device. And when they did, they made it a class two device with the stipula for only class two, only for major depressive disorder and catatonia. For every other diagnosis, it is still a class three device. What's the distinction? Why is that important? A class three device means that it is an experimental device. A class two device means that it has been found safe and effective. And mm -hmm. I saw your video on safe and effective and how the FDA defines that. So that means that, you know, the benefits outweigh the risks. So mm -hmm. what happens is when they made that reclassification decision on December 26, 2018, they said, we give you 90 days to submit your pre-market approval studies and your product development protocols. So that's your safety studies and your dosing consensus standards and to use the language they use for drugs, um, we give you until March 26th to submit it for all class three uses. So schizoaffective disorder, schizophrenia, bipolar, OCD, you know, mania for all of that. We'll give you until March 26th to, of 2019 to submit that PDP. And we'll give you until, uh, I think it's June 26th, of 2019 to submit it for the major depression and catatonia. Mm -hmm. And they said, if it is not submitted, if your PMA and PDP is not submitted by these dates, this device is deemed adulterated. Now, when a device is deemed adulterated, that means it is no longer allowed to be used unless the institution using it submits an IDE, which I forget what that stands for. What does an IDE stand for? It's uh, investigational device exemption, maybe. Yes, is that what it that's is? exactly okay. what it is. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so they must submit an IDE to the FDA and they must get that approved before they can proceed. So this is interesting because the court case here in Florida that they just had, um, the court case uh, revealed the subpoenaed records revealed that the device in question in the court case, the Thymatron device had never submitted any product development protocol or any PMA to the FDA because it was a grandfather device. Even though the FDA requested it at each of the device hearings, they just stalled and stalled and stalled and never submitted it. And in deposition, both manufacturer, you know, the co-owners of this device, Richard Abrams and Conrad Schwartz, they said that it is not their business to conduct 
safety testing. Yeah. <laughs> so it's, it, you know, they're, they're an interesting group because I, I bet you they, they, they don't make a lot of money selling thymatrons because it's, you, oh, you sell no. a machine, it just, just sits in a hospital, it's old technology. And so exactly. I imagine they would just say, we don't <laughs> care, but then all of the doctors would, you know, would throw a fit and say, we need these devices. Exactly. Yeah. Well, and yeah. the doctors and the institutions, I mean, the institutions are making bank. And I say that because they can... For you can Medicare, charge a lot for ECT, right? You know, you can charge yeah. a lot for ECT privately and mm -hmm. through Medicare and Medicaid, you can bill in perpetuity. There are no limits. So this becomes a problem because it has become their golden goose for funding their units because it's the most lucrative uh, thing that they can do in an institution in terms of, in, in terms of, uh, of billing for uh, psychiatric treatment. And that is true. That it, it makes a, <laughs> a lot more money to do a procedure, you know, than, you know, than bed management or psychotherapy. It probably is the most profitable thing that a psychiatric institution could do from an insurance standpoint. Oh, of course. I mean, if you look at the psychiatric, if you look at the psychiatry's form, they're discussing, you know, the, the money is made by the volume of patients given ECT. And when a outpatient clinic or a hospital clinic that does both inpatient and an outpatient, when they have a streamlined staff, they can do a patient every 15 to 20 minutes. So that's mm -hmm. one psychiatrist doing a patient every 15 to 20 minutes, all he has to do is push a button. Now, this is problematic because there are five different dosing methods, not even the Dr. Abrams and Dr. Schwartz, not even they agree on dosing methodology. They've published mm -hmm. multiple papers. There's at least five, actually six uh, potential well isn't the dose I am trying to remember because because I've I've been I've I've been in ECT uh rooms yeah. before I've seen it done isn't the idea that you're meant to elicit a seizure you know and that's like if you get to that level that's kind of when you stop is that typically is, is that what is done like that's that's one of the seizure uh, yeah. That's one of the methods. One of them is called okay. the benchmark method. Then there's the yeah. age-based dosing method. I mean, there's there's so there's there's actually they've just so they've just suggested starting using a sixth dosing method, which is the Scandinavian dosing method. And so you know, even amongst themselves, they have said you know the they need. I mean, just at the last Nordic conference, they were showing articles from even device representatives like Dr. Uh, Declan McLaughlin, who's a MECTA rep. He said, you know, the, the dose that maximizes benefit and minimizes cognitive deficit has not, is not known. And wow. they're not telling patients this. And yeah. they just published a study the, just this month, last week, this past week that said that it was between 42 and I think 58% of the ECT recipients did not respond to treatment. And they tracked them with MRI before, immediately after, and two years after ECT. And two years after ECT, immediately, like they got established baseline, immediately after ECT, they had an enlarged, you know, enlarged areas in the brain. And then in the past, they always attributed that to, you know, sprouting and magical growth that Im improves life. And this is great. Well, they're not, that's not based on neuropathology studies. That's all hypothetical and mm -hmm. wrong based on neuropathology studies. But then you go the two year after and look at the MRI and those exact same areas that were enlarged are now shrunk. And these people have cerebral, what's the word, cerebral atrophy. Yeah, yeah. So they're, they're even more atrophied than their baseline. And they were distinct from people who had all of the same symptoms who did not receive ECT. So, I mean, we're inducing cerebral 
uh, cerebral atrophy. We're inducing a spike in blood pressure that's 300%. We're inducing a spike in glucose use and in oxygen use that's 200%. The body is completely, it, it out, the metabolic of the, of the seizure outstrips the metabolic function of the brain and flatlines brain activity for up to more than six minutes. During that time, the person is not taking in air. You have to use the bag, the Ambo bag, and there's no capnography used. It's not a gold standard. Capnography is not a gold standard in ECT use. And so you have patients who can get anoxic hypoxic and anoxic brain injury during that when their brain shuts off and they're not breathing. And the, and even if their oxygen saturation remains within good limits, Posner demonstrated that because of the metabolic outstripping of the glucose and the nutrition in the brain, plus the subsequent acute bradycardia and 68% of the people in this one study had asystole. I mean, we're talking major consequences. And that's, yeah. that's a repetitive traumatic brain injury. So you have a loss of consciousness that lasts longer than the fast acting anesthesia. The fast acting anesthesia like Bravita lasts what? Five, 10 minutes. Okay. Half life. And then you have a loss of consciousness that can go from 10 to 40 plus minutes. So that mm -hmm. entire additional time, the person is in a coma. That is a loss of consciousness. The Department of Defense classifies a traumatic brain injury, a mild traumatic brain injury as a loss of consciousness that's between zero and 30 minutes. And moderate traumatic brain injury is from 30 minutes to 24 hours. Mm -hmm. And so that means with every single treatment, these recipients are getting a traumatic traumatic brain injury, either mild or moderate, depending on how yep. long they're unconscious. Okay. We know well, what yeah. repetitive brain injuries does to humans. You look at the football players. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So, so I, I guess my closing, yeah. I just, yeah. I created a, um, I created a petition and the petition is to audit ECT use because we need to understand the numbers we need we need a, a needs assessment to recognize how many people are affected by this um, because they've been using the same 100,000 since the 70s. And I'm sorry, but that was an arbitrary number to begin with. And then, so my petition can be found at change.org backslash okay. patient safety ECT. It now has more than 15,000 signatures. And in addition to auditing it, we need to ensure that every single recipient is automatically referred for rehabilitation, comprehensive assessments for rehabilitation, and given rehabilitation as indicated so that they can regain quality of life so that their families can understand just how bad this repetitive brain injury is and be more sympathetic because at this time their families are hearing from their doctors that it's all in their head. Yes, it's not in their mind. It is in their head. So okay. we need to get these people help. My people. I say these yeah. people, but I mean my people. <laughs> well, thank you so much for, um, coming on and sharing your story and telling me about the petition. You taught me a lot about uh, ECT brain injuries and I'm really grateful for that. You're welcome. And Joseph, if, sorry, Dr. Witt, <laughs> if, you're, if you're, um, so the other aspect of my advocacy you'd asked about is, uh, is I am really working to help people get help afterwards. Um, and so I have actually started a, uh, foundation that's called the Ionic Injury Foundation. And we're working okay. to understand the, um, we're working to understand the immediate and long-term consequences of electrical injury. And the Ionic Injury Foundation, um, I'm in, currently in the process of, of fundraising so that we can have an endowment um, to study these injuries long-term um, and better develop the rehabilitation because the FDA 
recognizes that the long-term safety and effectiveness of ECT has not been demonstrated and they recommend long-term follow-up, but there is no identified re rehabilitation or long-term follow-up uh, recognized. And so we're, I'm working in the process of developing that. It's fantastic. I'll be following you closely. So, so thank you once more. I really appreciate it. I appreciate your time and the opportunity to share my experience and to help those with these injuries and to prevent others from, from being subjected to unwitting human experimentation. Thank you for listening to today's episode. If you want to see the full video interview, we also post these to YouTube. Just go to Wit During Psychiatry on YouTube to find those. You'll also find several YouTube exclusive videos from Drs. Yosef and Marissa posted several times a week. Finally, if you need help with your drug taper, getting a second opinion, or managing your post-acute withdrawal, come visit us at WitDuringPsychiatry.com. Our sole focus is on helping patients regain control of their lives and achieve optimal mental health on as little medications as possible.